I do feel in the culture right now, we're in this other very antagonistic moment of where people are not, they're not listening and they're judging. And we're not called to do that, to judge. We're just not. That was poet and Episcopal priest Spencer Reese, whose new memoir, The Secret Gospel of Mark, was released recently by Seven Stories Press. His conversation with Commonweal literary editor Tony Domestico is coming up in a moment. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Tony. It's good to have you here. Hey, Dominic. Good to be here. You got to speak with Spencer Reese. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Tell us a little bit about him first. Sure. So Spencer Reese is an interesting thinker and writer who's led an equally interesting life. He's currently an Episcopal priest and the award-winning poet of two collections. Um, He was born in 1963 and he grew up in Minnesota. And his childhood was largely defined by concealment and shame At a very early age, he realized he was gay and felt that he had to withhold that from others and and even from himself for various points. And both of his parents struggled with alcoholism, as he did as well when he went away to college. And after he graduated, he spent years working as a sales clerk at Brooks Brothers before publishing his first book of poetry at the age of 41. In the subsequent years, he's, he's published another wonderful collection, then ordained to the priesthood and uh, just published his his first really interesting memoir. So what did you talk about with him? So we mainly talked about the new book. It's an account of how his life was really saved by two things, by poetry and by God. And in our conversation, we talked about some of the poets he has loved and continues to love, Sylvia Plath, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and how those poets gave him language to understand his own experience and how in a mysterious way, they ultimately led him to God. And we end up talking about how love is really the point of connection between his vocation as a priest and his vocation as a poet. Well, that's great. Why don't we take a listen? Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Dominic. So I thought we might start by talking about some of the poets who you've loved over the years and who provide the through line for the book. So the first poet you talk about is Sylvia Plath, and you write that her broken spirit called to you. And I'm interested in you just telling us, first of all, how and when you first came to love Plath, and what it was about her brokenness that spoke to your own feeling of brokenness. Thank you, Tony. It's an honor to be here and talk about this book that I've just been praying and thinking about for, well, two decades, really, and probably longer. But I was, maybe I was, I think I was 17 years old in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was beginning to feel a sense of desperation because I was beginning to sense there was something that I was gay, although I couldn't put words to it, and we weren't saying that then. And I just didn't know how I was going to handle this information. And so the whole story of Plath, the the suicide attempts, the depression, 
were things that resonated and I identified with because I was starting to feel those things very much too. She was a woman and she was coming out of this time before women's liberation. And I think her great rage and frustration at injustices that she had stomached, tolerated, and leapfrogged over as best that she could, I also was identifying with as a person from, I mean, I wouldn't have articulated it this way, but I was going to be part of another marginalized uh, group at that time, which I didn't want to be. And so I was not in acceptance and her poems were just so powerful. The unusual vocabulary. Like I remember the word I learned from her in those poems is tor, T-O-R, which is a Scottish word, which is like the side of a, a cliff. I'd never seen that word before, T-O-R. And she used it so naturally. And the poems were also poems you had to say out loud. And that that captivated me as well. Yeah. And that there's a way in which it seems she was giving voice to feelings of anguish, to feelings of pain, to feelings of desperation that you yourself didn't know how to or didn't know if it was okay to articulate, right? Yes, that's right. I just finished the beautiful, huge new biography. It gave me a bigger and, and, and stronger sense of what a great artist she was outside of this kind of little narrative that we have in anthologies or that we repeat. I think the the most harrowing, saddest piece of information I got from that book was uh, when they did the autopsy on Sylvia Plath, she had all these bruises on her body and on her neck because even in the moment when she felt she couldn't go on any longer, apparently in those last hours that she was alive, she was fighting with herself to try to save herself, even though she couldn't stop from saving herself. And these bruises were an indication that she was trying to get up, trying to get out of the kitchen where she had placed herself. And I had never read that before. And it, it just made me, um, I don't know, it, it made me sad. It's unfortunate that she died so young at 30. It's amazing what she accomplished at that age. And I'm grateful that I went on, that I lived on. And then the, the second poet you talk about being drawn to would at least on the surface seem to be quite different from Plath, and that's Elizabeth Bishop. And Bishop, you know, a poet of great containment and reserve and reticence, could you talk a little bit about what drew you to Bishop? Yeah. So I first encountered the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop when I was in college. And right away, I sensed this was a totally different sound. In the very beginning, I think I found her a little boring. You know, it wasn't this operatic cry for help that I was identifying with as a I hate to say it, but I think I felt like a victim for a while. I don't feel that way now. And Bishop hid her the most harrowing aspects of her biography from the poems, but it's simmering underneath, you know. But there was something in her sound that I just loved. And it was almost a talking about everything else but this great pain. And somehow that enhanced the, the sound of it. And that was very familiar to me 
with the way that I grew up with my mom and dad and and a sense of repression would be more validated than blurting out secrets. I began to love and love the poems, and they, my love and appreciation for them grew larger than my original enthusiasm for Plath. Yeah, and the precision of the poetry as well, which I think is so important for your own poems, right? Yeah, yeah. that's who she is, and she's, she got some of that from Hopkins because she wanted to capture the mind in action, and that that was a big thing with her, this sort of autocorrect. No, maybe that's not it. Maybe this is it. And you see, that's quite different and maybe a more mature sensibility than Plath, which is more like black and white. And I, I think as you get older, the world is not black and white. Or you can organize it that way, but it's. I think you're missing out because there's just so much ambiguity yeah, and and one thing that is interesting about Bishop, you mentioned before the repression and the reserve and the reticence about some of the, the great difficulties in her life, her childhood, right? Her mother being committed to uh, an asylum when she was quite young, her own struggles with alcoholism, her lesbianism that she didn't really write about in her poetry until the last word in her last great poem, Sonnet, right, is gay. It strikes me as very different from the poetry of someone who you already mentioned, Hopkins, who's another poet who's incredibly important to you. And could you talk a little bit about when you came to read and love Hopkins? I think it was really by the time I was in seminary the second time at Yale that he just, the sound of him, the thought of him really came back to me, which is where he appears in this book because it, he was much on my mind. And I just thought about him a lot because here I was choosing finally to become an Episcopal priest. I had survived AIDS. I had survived gay liberation had happened. Much, much, so much acceptance. People just randomly introducing people to their partners in front of bishops. No wincing, no pretending, a lot, or a lot, a lot less. And it made me just think of him and I mean, we probably wouldn't have the power of those poems if he wasn't so repressed, uh, because it's almost like the repression is squeezing out of the pores of those poems, like Plato. All this, the sound of him is so sexual. The sound of those poems is is always, to me, very erotic. When you, there are also poems you have to say, and they're just like, it's like you're almost using different muscles in your mouth because no one sounds like him. And I, I love him. I love him. I love him. I love him. What else can I tell you? And I love his exuberance. I love the humility of his sadness. Those terrible sonnets are written. He's been a priest for a while at that point, what, 14 years or so. And he's full of doubt and despair and putting one foot in front of the other. He's got this horrible job in Dublin and he's courageous. It seems that poetry opens you up over the course of this book, opens you up over the course of your life. God opens you up over the course of this book. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about the, the way that a poem can open you up and the way that, say, grace or God can open you up, how you think about the relationship between those two things? How a poem can open you up. Well, it's a mystery. 
it addresses mystery it, and the, the po- poetry is just it's it's such a, a magical it's like a spell it's like a harry potter spell or something you know they're they're just these magical things in in art and everybody ignores poetry it's always going to be that way probably and yet it's right in front of us and it has such power and in the church people will often go back to poetry at a hospital deathbed scene or at a funeral suddenly people that don't read poetry their whole life will turn to it and it's often not attached to the material world and there's so few things in our material world that are not attached and so it's great power and uh, they just gave me a way to live i i don't know i just i just i it gave me a, a solace to read these poets and read their biographies and read their lives and it gave me hope and it was like music I really can't, I don't know how to answer the question, but I, that's a try. It's a mystery to me. I think Marie Howe says the poem has to contain the unsayable. Well, what does that mean? The poem has to contain the unsayable. Well, her poems do that. If you read those poems about any of her poems from Magdalene, but also going back to the, the death of her brother, John, from AIDS. And they're simple and straightforward, like George Herbert, but they're containing something that's so unsayable. And unmerited grace, it's just beyond words. And uh, you asked me to talk about the, the murder of my cousin before we started this. And so I remember when John was killed, and as my life has gone on, that's unmerited grace. I didn't do anything to deserve a fate that was different from my cousins. And I can't explain it, but it, it is the same kind of awe and wonder that I think comes with poetry. Poetry is almost about the white space around it and not, and not the words. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. One of the the many strengths of this book is its series of portraits of the people who have been gifts to you, who have helped you uh, kind of move from feelings of repression and self-hatred through um, struggles with alcohol into an acceptance and love of yourself and of others. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a central figure for the book and a central figure for your second collection of poems as well, a man named uh, Durrell. Yeah, good old Durrell. So in the second book of poetry called The Road to Emmaus, he appears as the central figure. He's a cipher. He is not, aspects of him are unexplainable, rendered unexplainable, like a Francis Bacon painting or something, you know, like not all the parts are where they're supposed to be and he's not clearly defined and that poem took me about seven years to write. And uh, he is here 
of course, in this memoir, too, as somebody I met when I was entering the 12-step programs early on, which was after the murder of my cousin, which I think propelled me into recovery at such a young age. I was 23. My cousin and I were the same age. It was an unsolved murder. John was murdered in some kind of a bar fight. Maybe the police were involved. Maybe he was homosexual. There's so many unknowns, and they'll never be answered. But he was found broken into pieces and unidentifiable by his father. And that event uh, was like a dinner plate that that shattered our, our little family probably for all time. And its effect upon me, I see in retrospect, was actually a positive one in that it threw me into AA pretty scared because I was like, this is not good. (laughs) This is not good. And my drinking was horrific and it was deeply embarrassing, like Elizabeth Bishop, deeply embarrassing. I've never been embarrassed like that again in my life. Things have happened, but the kind of humiliation that comes with active alcoholism is like none other. And I've been graced with a reprieve from that for 35 years. So when I entered the program early on, I met Durrell, who was there, and he was a very flawed person. And I think it's an important story to tell in prose also in this time, because we're in kind of like a a cancel culture, virtue signaling, social media frenzy, Arthur Miller crucible, pointing fingers, you know, the the denouncing of, of people publicly. I find it deeply troubling and anathema and unrecognizable to me. It's not my generation, mainly. For that reason, the story of Durrell, I think, is intriguing because he was completely politically incorrect. He he would have been canceled from day one. And and yet he offered me in this kind of strange what's the word? I don't know, invisible way. Tremendous love and support and he believed in me. I didn't understand until after he was dead that much of that had to do with redemption, that he was looking to be redeemed because his own life had been, by and large, considered by most people, including his family, a complete failure. And I was too young. That is probably the callousness of youth. I didn't have the sense of compassion which comes with suffering and having nuance thrust upon you to to realize the depth of his brokenness. But he saved my life, really, in, in many ways. He believed in me through a very difficult and long period. He believed that I could write poetry, and he would say embarrassing things. And he didn't like poetry, and he didn't read poetry. I gave him James Merrill's Collected, and he said, well, I don't understand these. I don't understand these poems. But I said, oh, no, they're really interesting and great. And he didn't really have time for poetry, but he believed he said embarrassing things 
to me that no one else was saying to me that ones that I can repeat are like, your ship is going to come in. Every day he would say, your ship is going to come in. You can't keep a good man down. It's going to, this will happen to you. Your book will be published. And the day he died is the day the poem ran in the New Yorker. So it was the strangest and eeriest, eeriest day of my, my life that everything he said was coming true the very hour when he was leaving this earth. It was really weird, but that's exactly what happened. Thinking about the relationship between your vocation as a poet and your vocation as a priest, you quote a remarkable line from Herbert's book of prose called The Country Parson, in which he says that love was the business and aim of the parson. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see love working as the office and aim of your own dual vocations. Well, it's pretty humbling to say that that's your love and aim because I love that quote. And I think it is true now that I'm the, a parish priest in, in Jackson Heights and, and in my previous work in an, in an orphanage for abandoned and abused girls and in Honduras and then working for the Bishop of Spain for so many years as I did. And, and that what my business and aim was, was loving the bishop, a very complicated role to take up in the world. And love is messy. They forgot to add that to Second Corinthians 13. <laughs> you know, love is messy and love is complicated. And it's not just loving people that are easy. The most radical thing that Christ said was love your enemies. And no one ever, no one in any other religion says that, like that. And it's very compelling to, to think about that and it's it's my daily practice to try to um to try to in, in enact that and sometimes it's leaving people alone that are difficult i just had an experience recently where i was betrayed yeah that's the word where i asked some something not to be said and the, to a person that per person turned around and just did exactly what I asked them not to do. And you can't control people. You can't do anything with people. And Jesus knew that. If you go back and read chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, it is the most harrowing, poignant moment in the Gospels when Jesus is in Gethsemane in that garden. He knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he knows that Peter is going to deny him, and he sits there, and he knows what's coming, and he accepts it. And that's what I want to try to do, is that kind of love. And gosh, it's we, we can't have enough love in this world right now. We need more love, and love for everyone, a kind of radical love, is the only thing that's going to, to get us out of this, I think. And it's not easy. It's not easy. So for me, like radical love of the people that teased my high school classmate who, who hung himself, compassion and love for the boys that did that, compassion and love for the people that murdered my cousin, compassion and love for Durrell, compassion and love for the, the people that said racially 
uninformed things to my beloved colleague, Greg Pardlow in Madrid. Throughout the book, I'm thinking of those things and and love for my parents who aren't perfect, love for myself who isn't perfect. And I guess we're always going to be doing this because I do feel in the culture right now, we're in this other very antagonistic moment of where people are not they're not listening and they're judging. And we're not called to do that, to judge. We're just not. I don't think that I'm called to be an Episcopal priest to judge the people in the pews about their, their lives. Like, that's God's job. My job is to try to transmit some love to them. And that means the difficult people in the pews, the ones that say, I don't like your sermons, or the ones that say that are critical, or that or that are difficult, or th- those are the ones that, that need a, a lot of love or feel, you know, like th- they're ostracized from the church, or those are the ones that Jesus is saying, they're part of this. They're, it's not like us and them. It's that's what Paul says. He keeps saying that over and over again, that we are all one in, in Galatians. And he keeps repeating it because he's one of my favorite Bible characters because it's just so impossible. That's lovely. Thank you for your book and thank you for being with us today, Spencer. That is so kind of you to say about that book because the book, it's, it's like this child and you, you hope that my expectations with this book were so low. <laughs> I was like, is anybody going to read this book? I don't, you never know. Uh, but they were quite low so that you wanted to do this podcast and write the book up. And it means a lot. Thank you. It was well worth it. Spencer Reese's new book, The Secret Gospel of Mark, a poet's memoir, is available now from Seven Stories Press. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.